0: This is Confluence, Confluence. where great ideas flow together.
1: This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together. The podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. This episode is the first in a series featuring faculty fellows in the Willow Grant which aims to increase success of Native American STEM faculty and advance knowledge about issues impacting their career progression. The project is in its sixth year of exploring indigenous research methodologies and ways of indigenizing academia, while also supporting the advancement of indigenous scholars in various professorial roles at both tribal and non-tribal universities. The Willow Alliance is a collaboration among faculty from Salish Kootenai College and the University of Montana. The project is led by Dr. Ruth Pliny Sweetgrashy kills from Nueta Hidatsa Sanesh College and funded by the National Science Foundation through its Alliance for Graduate Education and the Professoriate. Listeners can learn more about the grant at the link in the show notes. The Graduate School is pleased to present this podcast series focusing on the experience of individual faculty members and key personnel who tell their stories of finding their way in an academic context that is not always well aligned with Native cultural and intellectual values. But their stories demonstrate creative and successful approaches to supporting Indigenous research and developing a new cadre of Native faculty who plays such a vital role in expanding the intellectual and cultural capacity of the state of Montana. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Diana Kreider, the grant lead at Salish Kootenai College, who has a fascinating Montana story. She first came to the University of Montana as an undergraduate and has since built a successful career as a research scientist in wildlife range and landscape ecology. We start the episode with her reading of a beautiful Spanish poem by Guillermo Rodriguez, with the personal significance to her. That poem launches our discussion about her blended identity with strong roots in both Mexico and Texas and how that powerful lens informs the questions she pursues in her work. We discuss that in the broader context of indigenous research methods and the importance of traditional knowledge keepers as vital resources for understanding the natural world. Welcome to Confluence, where we attend to immense amplitudes and follow the river's course.
0: This is a poem called Hacia el Mar, my grandfather's favorite, and it's on his tomb, by Guillermo Ramírez. Los más gratos en sueños son humo, todo pasa, el amor, el placer, y tan solo nos queda, a lo sumo, un recuerdo fugaz de ayer. Las riquezas que traen egoísmo, la ambición, la belleza, el afán, el poder, los honores, lo mismo, son volutas que al viento se van. Solo queda brillando cuáles gemas del espacio en la inmensa amplitud, las grandiosas ideas, los poemas de pureza, bondad y virtud. La corriente del tiempo nos lleva implacable al preciso final. Y por más que la mente se eleva, solo mira el abismo fatal. Prosigamos sin queja al camino, sin protestas, sin miedo al azar. Como río que a cumplir su destino se desliza en silencio hacia el mar.
1: Welcome to Confluence, Diana.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So that poem is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing it. And I could feel the emotion that it you know, welled up in you as you just even as you started to think about your your grandfather. So yeah, tell us a little bit about why you picked the poem and why it matters to you.
0: My grandfather loved this poem because it talks about our dreams are sometimes, you know, just missed. Um, But the ones that are made of love, of pleasure, those tend to keep on going like a river. And the things that are not good tend to just disappear. And everything, like a confluence, Let's go of itself into the rivers that end up in the ocean. My grandfather has had such an influence on my life, and um, it's interesting how through my life, you know, all of these um, comparisons to a river and how um, these confluences end up kind of taking us like a current to where we're supposed to be. And I've always felt his power, his influence in my life. I can feel his DNA in my veins. And um, he was an amazing person. He was an indigenous man from the mountains of Durango, Mexico. So of anybody in my life, he's the one that's impacted me the most.
1: Yeah, so that's incredible. So yeah, it's almost all of the pieces of your story are there, your, your, mm-hmm. your later work on wildlife, and, which we're going to get into as we go. But it's a great place to start because um, first, you know, your career and your work is so um, perfectly meshed with our theme on this show, right, which is confluence and... And bringing to visibility the kind of ways in which research takes mm-hmm. interesting courses, and and you just kind of voice that beautifully through the poem, and then in your own career, kind of uh, hits that as well. So one of the things we ask guests to do is to sort of tell their Montana story, but in your case, that's also telling your story of heritage, right? And, and it's this it's this interesting back and forth, uh, you know, a funny phrase that you are uh, that you you should do it in your own voice about married to Mexico
0: having an affair with Montana. <laughs> and I think I just told somebody today, I said, I have a larger home range than a male bear. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I remember as a young girl when I first moved to Montana in the 80s, making a footpath to Montana and, or to Mexico, going back and forth constantly to see my family because I missed my culture so much. But my grandfather sent me you know, off on this journey to become a wildlife biologist or what I thought that's what I would be. And um, at the time, we didn't have those programs in Mexico, so my family, unusually, you know, not in a typical sense of Mexico where women don't do those kinds of things, my family was very supportive. I remember my grandmother gave me a fake fur coat because all she saw was Grizzly Adams on TV (laughs) dubbed, and she said, you're going to need this, so I still have the coat. And um, anyway, I came up north, and I knew I, came, I had to come to somewhere where people studied bears, because that's what I wanted to do: was go back to Mexico. And I came here and found Dr. Charles Jonkel and became of his uh, member of his Bad Rabbit pack. Um, still a member of that bad rabbit pack. There's a bunch of us that get together frequently. And um, I bet there's probably a group of 30 to 40 of us. I was kind of a newcomer. There were people that had been working with the Border Grizzly Project, which he started here at U of M at the School of Forestry in the 70s. And Chuck and some very dear friends of mine, who are now like my best friends, but they were students back then, went to Mexico to look for the grizzly bear. Simultaneously, here I'm graduating from high school, and I've got this passion in my heart to go see if there's any grizzly bears left in Mexico and somehow converge with Chuck and meet this group of people, and he convinced me to move up here. I had never driven in snow. I had never been up north. I bought a little truck with 175,000 miles on it and moved up here in January, not knowing how to drive in ice or anything.
1: Full immersion.
0: A full immersion and fell in love with Montana. And it was quite a a contrast, you know, quite a struggle in my head because I I always wanted to be in both places. I wanted to be in Mexico or I wanted to be in Montana. So it was just interesting um, that there's a lot of coincidences to how I ended up here, Um, but regardless, I know that this is part of who I am and my place. And now I have this amazing husband that I've been married to for 29 years, who said he's bringing me to a place where I can thrive. Mm. So we're moving back to Montana. And um, now working with you know my my indigenous colleagues on the Willow project. So
1: yeah, so that, I mean that's why we're here. That's how we connected. Is um, you know our colleague Kuh-Wu is in that grant, um, and so we're doing this series on the faculty that are engaged in the Willow project. So let's talk a little bit about that, about how you came to that collaboration and how you came to be the co PI.
0: Well, there's a little bit of a story to that. It originally started when I met Ruth uh, Plenty Sweetgrass She Kills. She's a very close friend of mine and also um, one of the colleagues on this project. And Ruth and I were going through challenges on our graduate in our graduate work because we both felt like it was not suited to our community needs. Both of us are very community-oriented. I wanted the bare research that I was doing, to uh, really be focused more on the people that were in the area, that were living with the bears. And because I came from a westernized you know, ac- academic uh, you know, uh, background, at the time I, was, I had moved on from Montana. I had started my master's degree and my Ph.D. in um, a couple of schools in Texas. And those approaches were very different. And I, one of the things that I learned from that was that the tools that we learn here don't necessarily work in other countries or other cultures. And I found that to be the same here with indigenous cultures, you know, within the confines of the United States. You know, they're located here, um, you know, nations within another um, country. But Ruth and I had a lot of similar complaints, similar challenges, but then similar ideas. What are we going to do with this? How do we take these education systems that were not created for us and how do we adapt them so that they function for our own communities. And we began working on that. Ruth went on to start you know, the Willow Project. I um, continued doing some of my work down south. And then last year I came up and she said, hey, we're looking for somebody to represent Salish Kootenai College, who I love. I've always worked with that college. I've always loved the people there. And I said, heck yeah, <laughs> I'll take that position. So what we're focused on doing now is indigenizing education to where it's suitable for different worldviews, different cultural needs, culture and place-based needs. And that's been a very interesting experience in itself, is getting people's attention to understand that that's a very important thing. It may not be important to a lot of people because indigenous people make up such a small um, group within the context of all of the people on this continent, But it's very important, and that's why I think people like Ruth and I, Ka, uh, Jen Harrington, other people um, that are working with Willow are kind of like these workers that say, hey, nobody's taking care of this piece of the wall over here. We're going to go over here and, and help fix this, and that's what we're doing. It's a very constructive team, very creative team in terms of addressing things that other people haven't. Um, quite quite looked at yet.
1: Yeah, so let's get into the details of that a little bit. I mean, the Willow Grant's core principle is is building out these ideas of indigenizing knowledge, but also creating pathways for faculty to enact that in their careers. And that that's such a, you know, that's a piece of it that the ideas, which are gaining a lot more currency. In other words, um, indigenous research methodologies and methods. Um, I'm learning to add that extra M. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the people I've interacted with kind of Tutored me on that, um, but th- they're starting to get a foothold because actually we're realizing that ex- is a productive research framework. It's not just that Western science didn't get it right; it's that there's good science in that new methodology. You're going to yeah. see things differently. You're going to build out a different set of ideas, and they're also going to be better for the community because you're going to be serving them. So, so those ideas are in place, but now Willow comes and it says we have to have faculty career pathways that make that happen. So talk a little bit about that. How do you see the Willow Grant sort of pushing forward a new model of faculty development?
0: One of the most important components of Willow that I love that I'm most attracted to is the aspect of dissemination. You know, it's a dissemination machine. I mean, we're getting that information out there. We're preaching to people. We're talking about them, you know, to them. And um, and it's now spread into other projects that I work with. So some of the team members from Willow have been helping me on projects with, for example, down in Florida with universities who want to figure out, you know, how do we do this? I think one of the most important concepts of Willow, though, is that they are laying the foundation for what's required in terms of respect, um, in terms of inviting indigenous people in for what they bring to the table, not, oh, we're going to show you how to do this. Here, we're going to make a place for you. No, no, no. This is like, look, the world's problems are big. Um, Obviously, what we've been doing is not working. Indigenous people have knowledge that can help solve those problems. And how do we get that indigenous knowledge into an academic system that is deeply entrenched in westernized academia that actually came over from the Royal Society of England. And no offense against, you know, white men, I'm married to a white man, but but it was established by that group. And when it came over, when when the United States was formed, it brought those concepts over that excluded other groups that did things like used publications in peer-reviewed journals as the, you know, measuring stick for success, which does not work well in indigenous communities. So what What Willow does is it lays all of this out in this really beautiful circular concept that's not linear at all, bringing understanding to people that, look, if you want to bring Native faculty, if you want to bring Native students into your system, it's not just giving them a scholarship and putting them on a pamphlet. You know, we've caught on to the whole diversity thing. We know Mm -hmm. that you want the numbers, okay? So um, what it really is is... Um, And Ruth and I wrote something about this recently was, how do you create good habitat for indigenous people in a system that's built out of cement? So we often refer to the Columbia River, speaking Mm. of rivers. How do you go backwards and restore the Columbia River when it has been so altered and when all of these cement dams are blocking passages for, you know, all of these beautiful species of salmon and so forth? It's going to take a lot of work. Mm. It's going to take a lot of commitment. It's not just opening the doors and saying, okay, you can come back in now. You know, what is it going to take? Yeah. And Willow does that very well because it represents two sides. It represents an indigenous side, but it also represents the Western side. And what's really interesting is how we work within that confluence, within that confluence of where those two cultures meet Obviously, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater on either one. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't want to do that. Both have very powerful, you know, components to it, perspectives. How do, we, how do we work within that confluence with respect and then also deciding which things don't belong in the confluence? So, for example, we don't want to water down indigenous culture at all, but how do we bring it into the center to work alongside Western science to where it's it's uh, superpower. Mm. So, for example, in the work that we did in Mexico, I used three a three pronged approach. Or I say I, sh- I wished I did. Mm-hmm. My family, my ancestry, see acorns as sacred. Okay, those people in the Southwest, people in California, indigenous people have relied on acorns for thousands of years. They know acorns like they know them their own children. They know when they produce. They know how they're affected by wildfire. They know how they're affected by drought. Had I had access to that several thousand-year-old database for my research on bears, because bears eat mostly acorns in Mexico, that would have been incredible. Instead, at the time, what I had access to was local knowledge. I used that heavily. Those people actually provided me more information about bears than I ever got out of my technology or the tools that I learned up here in westernized academia. So how do we put those three things together so that they really can can be you know um, exponentially powerful compared to you know the individual components.
1: I like that that phrase superpower because I think it suggests what what you're kind of getting at early on which is that adding indigenous frameworks actually amplifies the impact of the research rather than it being somehow kind of this sideliner, right? That you add it in, it actually has this energizing effect on all the ideas that are otherwise in play.
0: Absolutely, and one of the most magnificent things about traditional ecological knowledge is you're looking at thousand-year data sets. You're looking at thousands of years of knowledge, whereas in modern science today, we have very short pictures. Look at it, let's face it, master's degree, PhDs, we're all based on two-year, five-year projects. You know, we don't have those kind of data Sets, And so I think that we, th- we base a lot of what we know about, like, you know, let's take wildlife, for example. We look at bears, and we say, well, bears do this, and bears do that, and this is the habitat they use, and this is how many of them there should be, and this is, you know, what they eat. But we have no idea what those bears did before colonization. Totally different. A lot of those bears were persecuted, just like indigenous people, so we don't know where they lived. Mm. Well, in in Mexico and Texas, we're observing bears re-expanding into their historic ranges, and they're flipping our lid. They're doing things that we completely missed in our publications and in our literature, even though people continue to use those as gospel because it's published, it's incorrect. Mm. And we need to understand the absolute foundational power of traditional ecological knowledge because it's such a long-term picture of what things should be, how they are, how they respond. Look at the plains, our prairies. It's tragic that we've lost 90-something percent of our tall grass prairies. You know, that knowledge set of how important those grass species were for bison and the whole relationship between, you know, the microbes in the soil and big blue stem and bison. We're just now restoring that to where it should be, bringing yeah. it front and center
1: yeah and these and these restoration projects which of course any Montanan who's paying attention around uh, you know the edges especially Blackfeet Nation has mm-hmm. a big bison restoration project which actually crosses the border mm-hmm. and it's a really important component mm-hmm. and of course the uh CSKT the Confederate Salish and Kootenai tribes have a lot of work on bears mm-hmm. and so you know you're hitting on two really important species in this area that are you know our understanding is expanding um, but there's also going to always be and wolves would be the third, and mm-hmm. you know we should throw that in the mm-hmm. mix here as well um it's going to create conflicts mm-hmm. with other community stakeholders right, and so that 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 management of that for Montanans is a living topic right i mean it's where but i think I think y- you know your research really focuses our attention on. What we're going to be able to do if we can hear the right voices and you know expand the conversation for how we address those issues.
0: Absolutely, and it also draws attention to the very uh, to the importance of each member of the community, whether it's acorns, whether it's soil, whether it's bears, whether it's humans, whatever. I think it's so important that everybody realizes it's not bears over here, wolves over here, cows over here, bison over here. It's everything is one. Um, community and how relevant everybody is in that community. Yeah. and I just saw a really wonderful film. Um, let's see, I think Bickani Health Lodge um, sponsored this film, but they were talking about that. And even livestock producers have that perspective of look, you know, bears are one of the members of our community. They're relatives. You don't shun your relatives and say, okay, you guys have to die or whatever. Mm. You know, unless somebody comes in and I was you gonna know, say, busts some up a party do. or something, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, um, there are some things you have to, you know, put your foot down on. But um, for the most part, it is a, a community aspect, and that's what we need to teach our children. I think that's going to benefit. Montana children to understand how systems work. We have obviously really, really messed things up on this planet. We don't have places where our children can get clean water anymore. I used to be able to drink out of streams. I can't do that. I learned that at the top of Glacier, there's lead in the water, mm. you know. And so, I, I hope everybody wakes up to the fact that look, we really blew it. And and I'll use a quote from one of the elders from Cheyenne Wind Wind River. Um, I was at an intertribal Buffalo Council meeting, and I was we were doing. Some rangeland management training, first of all, you know they have very strongly implied that management there aren 't many languages that have the word management in it; they prefer stewardship mm. and he told me he said this was a this was a government um, sponsored project to quote train tribal staff in range management so that they could work alongside the b i a we 've learned exactly what not to do when when you're trying to teach one of the most westernized disciplines that there are. And the elder reminded me, he says, you know that this whole discipline was built on a big mistake. Mm. It was built on removing bison, overgrazing, destroying the soil, and you guys had to invent a discipline to fix that.
1: To fix the problem. And I said, I totally
0: get that. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, and so to loop back a little bit, staying with the the bison range in that area up there uh, on the edges of the CSKT lands, what was your connection there um, to Salish Kootenai? How did that evolve and what are you gonna be doing there uh, in terms of advancing this indigenizing education?
0: Well, I've had a relationship with my friends there for a long time, ever since the 1980s, and I have to throw this story in here because it's so magnificent, but Chuck Jonkel brought me up to um, meet a tribal member Uh, or she was married to a tribal member at the time, her name was Millie, and um, showed me how she had been coexisting with grizzly bears, and how all the other Salish um, and Kootenai people had been coexisting with grizzly bears, and and they just seemed to, you know, have the magic to get it done. You know, there's so much to learn there. So he would take me there to to learn. And... um, Eventually, she passed away and our tribal colleagues, you know, knew that that was a critical area for grizzly bears. They put it aside and turned it into Millie's Wood. And so um, we now have a place that um, we hope will be, will be allowed to live there and steward uh, right adjacent to Millie's Wood where we can help restore that back to grizzly bear habitat as well. Um, so, since that time, you know, I've just been drawn to the Mission Valley and my friends there. I have been working with Salish Kootenai College for a long time in indigenizing the range curriculum that we were working with. We first went in with this real westernized approach that the agencies wanted us to teach, and it was like, this is not working. Nobody wants this this way. So, I went to Salish Kootenai. Uh, my colleagues there said, let's, let us take a stab at it. And we started working with it. It's worked out great. And so since I've been working with them on this Willow project, it's all segued into developing an indigenized curriculum that is place and culture based. Because for Native students, this is really important. The tribal colleges are the heartbeat of the community. Um, And American Indian Higher Education Consortium was founded on the words of their elders, and their elders, I think, if I remember this right, um, Dr. Boham, was the president of Salish Kootenai, told this story that those people who were starting AHEC went to their elders and say, what do you want? And they said, we want to educate our own children. And that's such an important component that their students have that cultural input into their lives and have the opportunity to do that. So I'm a huge advocate of, instead, creating culture and place-based education there at tribal colleges. If they need curriculum for natural resource courses, that's great. We'll bring it in, but we don't just bring it in packaged with the Western, you know, wrapping. We bring it in and we indigenize it according to how they want it packaged and how they want it delivered. Um, Now, we don't teach the cultural side. We just kind of prepare it in terms of you know uh, terminology and how we approach things, but each tribe adds their own cultural component to it. That's very sensitive. Very obviously, they're the only ones that possess that knowledge. So now we're working at uh, indigenizing you know um, natural resource curriculum for two main reasons. One is to prepare tribal college students for their own communities and to empower them. But the second is also to provide them with additional opportunities. If they want to go work for the federal government, they will be prepared and have the requirements. The federal government's very hard to qualify uh, for in terms of those natural resources positions. They're super rigorous. And not all tribal colleges have the faculty to supply all of those courses Larger universities generally have all of those programs. Like Montana has all the wildlife, and even though Salish Kootenai now has a very strong wildlife program. But Montana has a very strong forestry program that offers all those courses that you need to apply for a federal position. We don't quite have that at Salish Kootenai. They're working toward that. But we need to make sure that our students have every option available to them for getting a job and for, you know, in, in terms of working for the federal government. Um, we need their voices to influence policy. Thank
1: you. Yeah, you know? that's exactly what I was going to turn on mm-hmm. and say. That's so important. That you know, of course, tribal capacity is is huge. is very important, but so many of the federal lands that are just adjacent to tribal communities also need the voices of Indigenous Absolutely. people to be influencing federal policy.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think now, especially, you know, the tide has turned, at least for now, with, um, you know, our Secretary of Interior. We have a lot of influence there. The president just issued, you know, memos saying that, you know, traditional ecological knowledge now has to be considered uh, for land management um, decisions. That doesn't mean people go out and implement that methodology. It's not a methodology. You bring in tribal partners to do that with you um but now that we have that everybody's paying attention to it what does that mean what do, how do we do that and it's it's wonderful because we now see our native students being moved into positions of decision making which is usually the the higher level positions not the technician positions which is where they normally end up because they don't have all the classes but those upper-level positions where they can be promoted and pretty much end up in high decision-making positions, even in Washington, D.C., and we have their voice. You know, I get it. I believe that we need those students in our tribal communities to strengthen those communities and, and help at home. And I think that a lot of people want to be at home. We're caregivers. We're just very gregarious in terms of our communities. We don't like leaving home. I don't like leaving my home. Um, but— They're needed. And now we're seeing that. We're seeing them really moving into some high positions that are now impacting natural resource decision making across the entire continent, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, just speaking from the University of Montana grad school perspective, you know, we've been working on some cooperative agreements with SKC about building out graduate training and we're hearing a lot more of that. I mean, of course, they're our regional partner. They're right here. The barriers are a lot lower and and there's no reason for us not to be doing a lot more joint training and a lot more joint curricular development. And that's, of course, going to be very good for the non-Indigenous students that are doing wildlife biology. Absolutely. Because now you're working with colleagues and you're learning the respect and the importance of that kind of reciprocal relationship on the ground as part right. of it. So we can build that training out in a deeper way. And, and SKC is such a fantastic model. I mean, four-year degree, they're now adding master's degrees. And so there's, they're building a full full apparatus of education, culture, place-based, but also training, like you're pointing out, job development. So it's it's wonderful that you're so engaged with helping build that full capacity out of that institution.
0: Well, and I think a lot of us learned it the hard way. You know, I was working with students that, you know, we were getting them educated, but we you know, they'd go out and apply for jobs and they couldn't get a job. And it's like, what is wrong? What's wrong with this whole situation? And we had agencies like the Forest Service saying, how come we can't get them in? We started looking at things and tearing it apart. We actually did a project where we... Um, identified all of the disconnects with recruiting a lot of these underrepresented groups into the federal workforce and found 117 very significant disconnects, one of the main one being the lack of curriculum so that these students could have access to the classes that they need to be able to get into these career paths so it is important that we create these bridges so that students do have more of an opportunity to say okay once i'm done with my tribal college education i can go over here and end up with a phd or whatever they end up in an in an institution uh you know an academic institution where they're going to influence other students and we're seeing this now yeah. especially with our young um professionals oh my gosh they're making huge waves um in terms of how they're influencing you know the the students that they're working with But I think one of the biggest barriers that we're finding with this research, whether it's Willow and some of the other projects that we've done, is this barrier that we have with westernized science and how I think they're a little bit unsure of what does it mean to open things up for looking at other worldviews, you know, allowing Native um, Americans to come in with their perspectives and to talk about things differently than the way that we've normally talked about things in North America, particular, particularly in terms of, of uh, science, wildlife, you know, we're going to be objective, you don't connect to your um, specimens, you don't name them, you don't, and mm-hmm. the indigenous perspective is so very different. And yeah,
1: you use that phrase, everybody, when you were talking, and you were talking about acorns, and, yes. and i didn't interrupt at the time but it's such a a beautiful way of thinking that 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 all of the um, there's a western scientist uh philosopher named jane bennett who mm-hmm. calls this vibrant matter that the idea that the, the material world is like us. There's, mm-hmm. there's no fundamental ontological distinction between right. them. So that allows you to say things like we and everybody when you mean, you know, humans and non humans and the material makeup of the ecosystem.
0: Absolutely. And I and I will say, I may say some things that might, you know, rankle some people, but I noticed this during COVID and other Uh, like climate change, for example, you know, where we do want to rely on facts, you know, and helping people to improve their lives based on facts. But a p-value is not everything, you know. And I think that because scientists found themselves having to defend what their own system was about, they were afraid to get off that rock. Mm. So when you introduce indigenous perspectives, it doesn't mean you have to think like, they do or you have to you know start participating in indigenous ceremonies that's not what they want at all please do not <laughs> yeah exactly please do not appropriate but what what i think is how how do we figure out how to allow those expressions and how to allow indigenous people to present their views and Prove that those tools do work. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I can't say enough about my research in Mexico after 30 years. I'll tell you what, I spent a million dollars on that project. And when I went down there, I was like, okay, I'm going to go save bears. And I'm going to go tell these people how to live with bears. And I, I sat down with all these folks and they gave me a list. Okay, you can imagine a young girl just came out of University of Montana, coming down there, and they said, well, this is how many cubs the bears have. This is what they eat during this season. This is what they eat after fires. This is how many cows they'll kill and why they're killed, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, yeah, I'll show them. Million dollars later, checked off every one of those boxes, and my thought afterwards was, why wouldn't I believe them? Mm -hmm. Why did I have to spend a million dollars to come up with a statistical study that really wasn't very powerful, Telemetry is not that powerful, especially with bears. You know, you want to study rats if you want to get p values, but don't study bears. They're really hard to study because they wander all over the place. I was going
1: to say very few cubs. It and is, and it's, and it's just, it just takes forever. And, yeah.
0: and um, and I started really questioning my perspectives. My, I started listening to my grandfather. The things that he taught me: always question, always ask why. That's why he spent so much time in jail, I guess. But, um, you know, always challenging the system. And I realized this educational system did not fit what we tried to do in Mexico at all. What really worked in Mexico for bears and conservation was a locked gate. These people who lived there decided to protect bears. They provided them with water. Boom, man, doesn't take a million dollars. They did fine. You know, just fine.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I feel like... uh, covered a lot of ground we, have. we is all there... have
0: the place like a bear in his home range
1: yeah and I just want to make sure like um we always pause we want to make sure if there's something you really want to talk about that we haven't touched on
0: I would like to say something yeah so I want to talk to the students out there and I think one of the things that was so frustrating this is why Ruth and I came up with this project is because we were really frustrated with our academic experience it's like, man, this is just not what we thought. And yeah. when we got to academia, we were also like, this is not what we wanted. Publications and grants and all of this stuff just for the sake of you know, adding it to my resume was not my idea at all. We wanted to make an impact in our communities. But the point is this, that I tell people as a, as a Mexican, because I'm a Mexican citizen along with a U.S. citizen, and just because you're Mexican doesn't mean you're Spanish, by the way, which I've been told that by many people, You know, you can tailor your education however you want to make it useful to you, to make it relevant to you. And I think that's one of the most important things that I see happening now with Indigenous students is that we're now making the way for them to just like, what do you want to do? And we need to work closely with our professional organizations who have a tendency to create templates, professional templates. Like this is, you get these these letters after your name and you do this and you take the certification program and boom, you're a template just like us. Now go out and go do whatever you do. Unfortunately for indigenous students, nobody ever taught them about. Indian land tenure. Nobody ever taught him about cultural relevancy, things like that when it came to your westernized academic experience. So I encourage students, look, you put your foot down, you stand up and you tell your advisors what you want out of your project, what you want out of your education, and if somebody doesn't provide that for you, you go find somebody like an advocate. That's what I love about Jen Harrington's job is she's an advocate for her students. Oh boy, is she. And and yeah. I and she's doing that. She's helping them to kind of, you know, create what they want out of their education. You don't have have to accept the template. You know, granted, if you want to get a range 454 position or a forestry position with the U.S. Forest Service, yeah, you gotta check off all those classes. That's fine. But for you know, creating a, a career that is going to be really meaningful to you and doesn't fit the template, don't be afraid like a river. Don't be afraid to meander and to create those those pathways. That's what I love about rivers versus, you know, irrigation systems, which is basically what we did with the Columbia is we just created these Channeled cement yeah. pathways because it's easier if you program everything for everybody like, you know, assembly line Model T Fords well, that's not what indigenous people are about at all. We're about creativity. We're about expression. We're about you know, letting people be who they want to be. And so
1: I'm so glad you're bringing this up because of course that's also the case with the highest level research in almost any field requires creativity. Mm-hmm. I mean everyone knows that, right? So, you know, the traditional way of looking at it is you you kind of pay your dues and you work your way up and then creativity comes on top of it. But I think the new way of thinking and it's not, you know, it's not just here, it's in other spheres of graduate education is to make sure that creativity is threaded all the way through. That people see that the goal is creating new knowledge. That's that's our goal,
0: right? Absolutely. So, of
1: course, whatever field you're in, right? You got to master techniques at that fundamental level. We get that. But you're not mastering them just to master them, right? You're yeah. you're trying to generate new questions, new ideas, new Absolutely. knowledge. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And you know, in our podcast, we we elevate some of these issues, imposter syndrome, you know, breaking down uh, the sense that I can't do that, right? right? And I think that's a huge change that we've noticed in our indigenous students. That we're seeing growth in that graduate student population, where you know, if if a student came from a tribe and they were the first in their family to go to college, well why don't you be the first to go and get your graduate degree too, right? And become a professor or a researcher or come back. So we're trying to open that pathway up so people can see themselves in the field. And I think that's why um, the Willow Project is so valuable because it allows them to see other indigenous scholars doing this work. And like you put it earlier, opening up pathways.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the most important things that we can do is to, you know, every time I, I drive along the Flathead River, it's just something new every time, and we need to keep that perspective because even in research, we can get dull. Um, I noticed, like, in even in the bear world, we do a lot of research because, well, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. We go and catch bears, and we put collars on them, and we research them. Well, yeah. you know, at what point do we say, okay, I think – you know, I got to that point in Mexico where I decided I've poked on them a lot enough, and I, it's time for me to leave them alone because we have, you know, they're obviously reestablishing, they're expanding into, you know, their historic ranges, and let's go on to another problem. And I think that if you drive along a river enough, you'll forget to look at it, and I think we need to constantly be refreshing our research. And and one of the things I think about with indigenous communities is that we're not just looking at one aspect of it. We're looking at how the whole community affects that one question or how that one question affects the whole community. Yeah. So you don't go to people and say, hey, we want to do a bird project on tribal lands. They're going to say, well, how does that impact my uh, suicide rates? How does that impact my um, e- economic you know, um, opportunities yep. and things like that? Yep. We have to talk about the whole picture here. So as researchers, I think we can even learn from that by continuing to open our eyes, look at things in new ways, and constantly be asking ourselves, are we asking the right questions? Because now that it feels like this planet is you know, sinking, mm-hmm. um, we need to really start stepping outside and saying the things that we've been doing don't appear to be working here. What, what yeah. do we really need to be asking ourselves and where do we need to be paying attention? We need to be focusing on education. Um, you know, and and growing up our young children. I mean, it's obvious they're going to be the ones who are going to be solving these problems. Are we putting enough into that and focusing on the aspects that really matter? So when I come back to my bear research, I always tell people it's about the power of an acorn. Um, The only problem about the power of an acorn, that's the most relevant thing because that's what drives these populations, but I just can't get on the cover of a National Geographic with an acorn. (laughs) Maybe with a bear head or a lion head or something, but not with an acorn. That's the problem.
1: That is a problem, yeah. We end every episode with our quick hitters. You ready for them? Yes. Morning or night person?
0: Oh, both. <laughs> all day, all night? All, I ask my husband, poor thing.
1: Sunrise or sunset?
0: Uh, sunset.
1: And boy, Central Texas sunsets. Huh? Yellowstone or glacier?
0: Glacier all the way.
1: What's your favorite Montana river and why?
0: The Flathead course every time i go by whether it's the middle fork or the north fork and i have to say the north fork mostly because we spent a lot of time up there with chuck jonkel that's where some of his original bear work started with the border grizzly project and we we took his ashes up there and so every time i see uh-huh. the north Fork, it's like oh. a particular <laughs> all over, all over. spot where you put the ashes um yeah i rather would not say no no it's, of course it's not. way yeah. out in the middle of nowhere yeah. and we all camped out there last year uh, about wow. 40 of us and and that's had so a powerful. ceremony it was beautiful
1: yeah What's your favorite Montana mountain range?
0: Missions, of course.
1: Um, What's your shadow profession, the thing that you thought, eh, maybe I'll try that out, and you just kind of never got around to it?
0: Um, Well, the Coast Guard was one of them, but then I saw Jaws when I was a teenager, (laughs) so that blew that, and um, I do get kind of seasick, so anyway, I stayed, uh, stayed with terrestrial animals.
1: Yeah. What would your best friend say about you? How would they describe you?
0: I think she would say crazy, but faithful, and committed and just in love with people.
1: Yeah. Well, that's perfect. What a great place to wrap up. Thank you for joining us on Confluence.
0: Thanks so much.
1: If you like what you've heard, you've got a team of talented graduate students to thank. Produced and edited by Kathleen Shannon from the MA program in journalism. Recording, sound design, and editing by Kate Lloyd. From the MFA program in media arts. Jacob Christensen, from the MFA program in theater, edits the website and works the social media magic. All lost, not... mm-hmm. and it, and it, from Pride you. and Prejudice.